What's up, everyone? Welcome in. Final Score Podcast. Craig Swatek of the Frederick News Post Sports Department here with you. Uh, glad to have you aboard. And uh, this week on the podcast, we'll be talking Orioles baseball with uh, the voice of the team, uh, Jeff Arnold. Uh, so look forward to that conversation. Jeff is a longtime friend, uh, about to enter his third season as the broadcaster of the Orioles. This will sort of be the first normalish season Jeff has uh, had on the job. So we'll talk to him about that. And just his expectations for the team. Uh, not a lot of is expected of the Orioles this season, but, but we'll uh, get Jeff's perspective on, on uh, where they might finish and, and and we'll get him to maybe uh, offer some glimmers of hope uh, for, for the team because they do have some top young prospects. So uh, in just a couple of minutes, uh, we look forward to talking to Jeff. Uh, but first, uh, Alexander Dacey is here, FNP sports writer. And I'm curious, have you gotten any feedback so far? And granted, the episode hasn't been out for that long yet. But have you got it, gotten any feedback so far to your uh, initial power rankings for Frederick County Baseball? Uh, it's a pleasant surprise, but no. Um, nothing on Twitter, nothing in my email, uh, no, no one sending me any snail mail. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised I haven't been thrown under the ringer. Um, that might change this week cause it got a little bit more difficult, but <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And like I said, the episode hasn't been out that long yet. Cause our, our, uh, esteemed producer Graham Cullen is a bit, uh, overworked these days as, as he's caring about, uh, Three different jobs for the company at the moment, so uh, we'll, so we'll see as it as the episode lingers out there to see if we get a little more reaction. But but again, these things will change over the course of the season. People will like them, uh, people won't like them. So so I'm 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 curious to see what sort of buzz, if any, uh, these things generate. And we'll get to your power rankings uh, for this week uh, coming up in, in in a minute or two. But I did want to talk to you about this uh, this uh, feature story you did uh, that appeared in the paper last Thursday, I believe it was. Uh, a, a very sad and uh, unfortunate uh, story, uh, not an easy one for you to, to tackle, I'm sure. Uh, it involved the death of uh, Urbana uh, track runner uh, Kaylee uh, Myler. Am I pronouncing her last name yes. correctly? Yes. Uh, uh, who, um, who, who, who died, uh, on, on a trip to Cancun, um, uh, and, and just, a, a real, uh, uh, tragic episode. Um, what was it like reporting this story, man? Um, I mean, I, I know it's not easy and, and what did you learn about Kaylee and, and what she meant to her team in the process? Yeah. So obituaries are always weird and difficult especially when it's someone so young and it's such a like it, it's it's very sudden and it, and especially like it's always kind of weird for me especially when I have to write about someone who's my age this is this is the second time I've had to do that in my very young journalism career and it I, I think I think having already done it once made it a little bit easier. Like I was a little bit more comfortable reporting this time, but it's it's still just very awkward and and it just kind of hurts. It kind of hurts your soul because you're like this person should still be like alive and yeah, you know, living and doing, you know, kind of just do just doing whatever they would normally be doing. But um, no. So with with Kaylee's story, um, we had first gotten wind of it uh, on. Well, it would have been Thursday, the 24th of March. Um, uh, Josh uh, Smith, our editor, um, had noticed a social media post uh, from Urbana about her. And he had called he called the coach to um, coach Ecolano to just confirm. And and so then that kind of set into motion, you know, the kind of just going about reporting it. So I was very, very lucky that, you know, everyone kind of you know, sort like surrounding her that I talked to was very gracious and, you know, kind of more than willing to share some memories. And so what I did was when, when I got back into the office last Monday, um, the 28th, I just called CJ and he basically gave me a good 15, 20 minute rundown of just like kind of who she was and, you know, said some very nice things. And then he connected me to um, her three friends that I talked to in the story that were part of like that that dream team uh, that they called themselves. Uh, so I talked to them throughout the week, and then eventually Thursday morning I talked to her dad, which was 
Um, he was he was very very nice, but he he was just exhausted, and I'm like I, I do not blame you in the slightest. Like this is, I, I can't imagine like what you're going through right now. And but he was very very gracious, and we talked for about ten minutes th- uh, last Thursday morning, um, and then I pretty much spent the you know that entire week starting from when I talked to CJ on Monday through finishing up my conversation with um, Kaylee's father, Ron, on Thursday morning, um, basically kind of putting the story together. And, you know, it, it really helps, you know, what I, what I kind of learned from when I did this the, the first time a few years ago was, you know, anecdotes are really everything in an obituary and, you know, getting those details that you would not that you 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 know it's not something that it, that's that it's so generic right it's like you have to kind of you know get details from people that make you know oh like this is who this person was you know like if if i'm one of her friends and reading this like i know exactly what they're talking about and so you know that's that that's that's kind of you know sometimes that can be hard with with an obituary just because you near never know how willing people are to talk but fortunately um, everyone I talked to was very open and, you know, when I would sit, when I would occasionally, you know, ask for more details or ask for more specifics, they would, you know, they would happily, um, you know, they, they would, they would tell me. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, I guess, just the process of it. Um, it's, it's, it, it's a hard thing and it's, it's something that I have found and you kind of have to take breaks what when you're writing because it's like it's like you can only a stare at a story for so long um but also be especially one that has a lot of kind of emotional heft behind it you have to like you know you kind of have to you know work on it for a little bit and then step away and just kind of clear your mind and then at some point you get back around and you write a little bit more or you talk to someone else um you know or you make some notes and so yeah so that was kind of the whole reporting process of it um, your, it was your second question was about, um, kind of just thing, things I learned. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a couple of things here. I mean, she was on spring break in Cancun. Mm-hmm. Do, do we know much about how she died? Not really. And I did not want to press on that. I was like, it was like, if the family wants to tell me, they'll tell me, but I'm not going to like, you know, I don't, I, that's not something I felt like I should press for. Um, the mo- the most we know, uh, is that, um, you know, in, in their, in their little, uh, in the, the, Ron and um, and and his wife Kaylee's mother um, Tian wrote a wrote a little kind of eulogy obituary type thing of their own um, and in there they just said it was an it was an accident while she was on spring break in, in Cancun so that's about as much as you know we we've kind of confirmed to know and again I I was like I'm not I do not want to press like press any more details yeah, uh, on that. that's that's kind of not the important uh, that's right. not really the important thing but um uh, yeah, I, yeah i understood but foul play is not no 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 no, no, right. no, yeah. no, no. Okay. this is this was just this was just some like there was just probably some freak accident while she was on vacation so okay gotcha um, yeah uh and, and i i guess i was gonna ask just what did you learn about kaylee the person uh, through, through talking with uh, with all her friends and and also were you surprised that people were so willing to talk to you about her so um so the main, the main, the main thing, and it kind of comes through in the story, is that she was just sort of like a ball of sunshine, um, and joy, and you know, it was always just a motivator, always someone who, you know, w- would go out of her way to support her friends, her teammates, would make you know people feel welcome if they if they were new to the you know if they were new to the team or if they were new to the school, um, you know, just always always someone who was just very bubbly and very and always very easy to make laugh, um, you know would always kind of be the um you know the uh one of her friends i think this was um uh i think this was maddie maddie gilliam who was, was one of her uh, good friends described her basically as kind of like the the mom of like their group but also um you know someone who would just always you know always light up the room always would be having a good time um you know always would you know you know make sure everyone around her was having a good time and that's kind of you know, that's kind of what I tried to show, just tried to, you know, kind of show in, in writing was that, you know, she was basically just kind of a, a like the, the headline on the story says beacon of positivity. That's, been, you know, that's, that's, that's really what she was. And so, you know, and, and so the, I think that that showed through. And then, you know, kind of to your point about, you know, people being open, I, I guess yes and no in people being open, because again, 
the nice, I, I guess, not the nice thing, but the, the thing about obituaries is if you if, if you get people when they're comfortable, and so, like, just, just for context, like, I, um, I basically had texted or uh, – um, except for CJ, because we had already talked to him. I, I just, I just called him, uh, you know, I just called him because he knew, he knew we were doing this. Um, but for her friends, um, I had, I had texted them ahead of time to be like, Hey, like I'm working on this story. Like when is a good time to talk? Cause, and you know, just cause I didn't want, um, right. I didn't want you know, that I wanted them to be in like a good place. And so, you know, once I think they were in a good place, then they just I kind you kind of just ask them like you know what do you remember and then they and then they just kind of opened up and then you kind of and then you're just having a conversation right basically. okay and, so so you so. sort of had an idea whether they were going to be willing to talk before you embarked on the formal interview yes I, I, yeah I, I and guess. so and so that was and so I I thought that was kind of important to just you know just just send them like a like just text them ahead of time and be like hey. Like, are you good doing this? And they, the the good thing is they were. C, CJ also told me he had talked to them. He had let them know that that we were going to be working on a working on a piece. So that yeah. So so again, they kind of had a bit of a heads up, but I just still wanted to right. get out to them. So yeah, but it's still such a sad, emotionally fraught story. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't blame people for not being uh, willing to talk to you or, oh, or, or wanting to talk about it. So. Um, yeah, I mean, what a tragedy, man. But 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 nice job on the reporting of the story, and and it's it's just a real shame. So, all right, let's 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 pause for a second here because we're going to do a complete 180 <laughs> in terms of importance and in terms of uh, um, emotion. Um, but so let's just pause for a second. But I do want to get to your uh, second installment of 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 your power rankings uh here so frederick county baseball and and we're going to drag john cannon in here and and we're going to get some other sports involved going too i i think uh between you and i at least we could probably get some lacrosse rankings going um uh, for next week so this is not just going to be a baseball exclusive thing every week or we it will do baseball every week but we want to expand it beyond that but Anyway, uh, without further ado, your week two baseball power rankings. And I think we started from the bottom up last week, so that's probably what we should do this week. First of all, as a little tease, has there been a change to your rankings? Yes, so there has been a change. The I, I, I will tease it this way. The top three teams are the same top three as last week, but the order has been shuffled a okay. little bit. And then the number four team has changed. All right, and so, so we'll start. We'll, we'll, start we'll, we'll start there. What's the change at number so four? So Middletown has lost two more games and is one in five. So they are out of the power rankings. They might be the best one in five. They high might school be the best one in five team. Yeah, they might be the best one in five team of all time because they basically only played good teams so far. And so I'm. There will probably be equilibrium as the season goes along. But for right now, I. A one in five. I just don't feel right putting yeah. a one in five team in the power rankings. Uh, uh, understood. Um, so that kind of opened that kind of opened it up, and there was some. I think there you could put a couple teams in this slot, but right now I'm going to put TJ, who's kind of been a very quiet four and one. Yeah. Um, they they you know they lost their opener in a extra kind of a wild extra innings game against Walkersville, and since then they've just kind of quietly been winning winning all their games, and they're you know they're they're four and one. They've got. A pair of wins in the county. They've got a plus twenty six run differential. You know, pretty pretty good numbers for uh, for them. So they're right now the no, the number four slot. All um, right, number three, number three right now. I uh, I bumped them down a spot from last week. Not any fault of their own, um, but that's Catoctin uh, at five and one. Th- this is where I kind of gotten kind of was was having some issues <laughs> in my head because I I think I, I think in very well might actually be the best team in the county. Um but they have that loss to Brunswick kind of just hanging over them and so and it was so recent that, you know, despite them just dominating everybody else, that does hold that does hold a lot of sway. So for that reason they're behind Brunswick, who was number two. They are also five and one, and again, they have you know they have. I don't want to say they've like they've outright dominated anybody this year, but they've sh- they've they've shown that they can. They're winning games. They're yeah. winning games. They beat Catoctin, which might be the best win so far of any of any of any team in the county. 
Um, they do have that little bit of a head. They just did have a little bit of a clunker of a loss to Boonesboro the other day, which does kind of dour things, and that's why I bumped them down to number two. But yeah, they have they have two really good starters, uh, uh, and uh, Nolan uh, Genies and Oliver uh, uh, Ellison. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that third starter is the one they're working on with, with some young players. Yeah, and that was kind of that was sort of the 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 downfall the other day against Boonesboro. So again, just just for that reason, they're now down to number two, and then up to number one at f- currently at four and one is Urbana. Last week they were at number three because they just not played many games. Well, now they've almost caught up to everyone else, and uh, they're they're the real deal. Um, that loss to Sherwood, you know, is it was basically like a possible state playoff preview. So, you know, in, in their season opener, and since then they've kind of rolled to being four and zero. I I covered them Monday against Linganore. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about this game. And and I think again, their their off their offense. I mean, granted that was it was a it was about as good of a pitcher's duel as you can get with Ben Moore and Brendan Yegish. Um, you know, so obviously hard to read too much into the offense in that game, but I, I I think I think right now Urbana might be the most complete team, and they also critically don't have like that that clunker of a loss like like Boonesboro like Boonesboro is not as good as Sherwood, they just aren't. Right. So Catoctin has a maybe a clunker, Brunswick but, has a clunker, uh, Urbana doesn't have a clunker no, yet. Yeah. No. Um, where, where, where does how close is Ligonor to cracking the top four? Because I mean, Ben Moore m- m- makes them a, a legit team that could, on any given day, beat anyone. So Ligonor is kind of an interesting case study because they're two and four, and they're zero and three in Ben Moore starts, but each of those starts has been like a like a one nothing, two nothing, three nothing type game, two one. You know, like he's basically just having there, he's having some really kind of just hard hard like luck little run support um like he's pitching great he ice again i saw him monday against urbana he was phenomenal yeah that game. W- what was it like watching him and yegish go at it it was it was maybe one of the most efficient high school baseball games i've ever watched and it was it was very fun he was not as dominant as yegish he did allow he only had i think one one two three inning but still even when he would like walk a guy um you know, he would very quickly get out of it. He would kind of just come right back and just, just, just throw a bunch of strikes and I, then, you know, force, force contact. He had, he didn't, he had six strikeouts, so it wasn't quite as, you know, quite as dominant as Yegish, but still he was, he was very solid. Um, but the, yeah, they're an interesting team because they, they have that ace, but they're also not backing up their ace. And again, right. I think part of that, and I, I, I posited this in the game story I wrote, um, Monday, you know, because they're throwing more on Mondays, Mondays are when you usually typically see the, your other team's best, you know, your opponent's best pitcher as well. And so their bats might not be quite, you know, quite ready to go to, to you, know, you know, to back it up against like the elite of the elite. So that's sort of, you know, that's kind of, I guess, the big hang up is that they have the pitching. They at least have the top end pitching. And then I saw them in a game uh, about two weeks ago against Walkersville, where they won, they won, they won kind of a wild back and forth, ten to eight. So they've shown they can, they they have the bats, you know, maybe not against quite as good of competition. So they're kind of in that like, I, I don't know if I want to say tier two, but they're in that kind of like rung right below the top four. Um, them in Tuscarora as well um Tuscarora again being the weird case of they have the best like like statistically they've allowed the fewest runs in the county like they have probably the best you know one of the best pitching staffs if not the best pitching staff they had a they had a run I think they have a couple like two or three shutouts already um but again they're losing all these really close games so it's like you know they're three and three how much can you you know trust them to even if they're only losing close they are still losing so right yeah. so, to, so to recap we got uh urbana at one mm-hmm. uh brunswick at two based yep. on their head-to-head with katoctin katoctin at three and then tj moves into the top four um uh, this week yes so. but that i will say that i will say the top three 
are very likely going to stay the top three in some order. So there's there's a separation between the, three and four. There is a separation yeah. between three and four. Um, I again, it, it's early. That can change, but as of right now, I'm I think those three, um, you know, Urbana, Brunswick, and Tocton are pretty clearly the top three, and the, whatever movement happens between them will be happening between them, and then it's whatever that fourth spot is, whether. You know, Middletown finally, like their schedule finally relents and they can start winning some games. You know, Lingenor can figure out how to back up Ben Moore. Tuscarora can also figure yep. out, you know, how to start hitting a little bit better. So, um, you know, yep. we'll see. Well, there, there you have it. Uh, the second installment of Alexander's uh, high school baseball power rankings here in Frederick County. Feel free to send any nasty comments to adacy at newspost.com. You could also, you could also throw in some nice ones too. And we will we will expand out the power rankings to, to beyond baseball. Hope hopefully starting next week. Let, let let's sit down and uh, do that. So, all right. Thank you, Alexander. When we come back, we're talking with we're talking Orioles baseball with play by play voice Jeff Arnold here on the final score. Opening day in Major League Baseball is upon us, and I'm very pleased to welcome back onto the podcast a good friend and the play-by-play voice of the Baltimore Orioles, uh, Jeff Arnold. Many of you will recognize Jeff not just through his work on the radio and television with the Orioles, but his time spent in Frederick as the primary broadcaster and media relations hand for the Frederick Keys. Jeff, it's great to have you back on. Sorry to pull you out of the sunshine and warmth of Florida. How are you, my friend? Well, Greg, it's great to hear your voice. I'm doing well. I got back from Florida on Monday, and so you're actually not pulling me pu- pulling me out of anything. Uh, me and my girlfriend are in, are in Annapolis today, just taking in some of the sights and um, hopping around and doing some different things and having some fun and just kind of relaxing a little bit more before the baseball season gets started on Friday. But I'm doing well. Um, it was a, it was a nice off season. It was a, it was a great break and had some fun and enjoyed myself and. And now we're getting ready to get back to it um, just in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm curious, Jeff, how much of an opening day is this for you personally? Because this is your third season with the O's, but it's the first that hasn't really been drastically impacted by the pandemic, just in terms of the on the field stuff. Uh, You got your call to the big leagues in 2020, and it really hasn't been normal since. I mean, a a pandemic began (laughs) right right after you got the job. Yeah, let's see. We got a a pandemic, we have a CBA, we have a, a 2021 season, which had some normal aspects to it, but not fully normal. You know, when you can't go in the clubhouse, I don't think you'd describe it as fully normal. But, um, you know, I'd say that what's going to be great this year is when we have the home opener against the Brewers on April 11th, and you'll finally see a pack Camden Yards. And we saw it a couple of times last year um, when Jim Palmer had his bobblehead day and some different things like that, and some different opponents were in town. Um, you, you got to kind of see what it's like when when you get Camden Yards and in all its glory but but yeah when we have opening day this year I think it'll be much different uh, because it'll be the normal rejuvenation that I think everybody who is an Orioles fan is ready for and hoping for where there's no capacity restrictions there's no limitations on uh, a variety of things and so I'm looking forward to being able to go out there on on the 11th especially and just see Camden Yards fully packed and, and have kind of a first, like, this is what opening day in Baltimore is really like. And I think he had a little bit of that last year. I think some of it was helped out by Trey Mancini's triumphant return to the city after what he went through in 2020. But I say that this year is, is probably going to be especially cool um, to see opening day in Baltimore when we, uh, we take on the Brewers on April 11th. Yeah, I mean, tell us what those early days were like. I mean, you're calling games in empty stadiums. You're not traveling with the team. For the road games, you're calling games based on what you were seeing off a television monitor. I mean, how, how, how strange was that when, 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 you, when you started with the Orioles? Well, when you go to broadcasting school or when you go to the minor leagues and go to all these places and try all these different things out, um, learning to do games off of a monitor is not in the handbook. Um, and it's not something that you train to do in college. And it was an experience that none of us had. Um, I think some of us have gotten used to it over time, but it's still an abnormal experience for sure, because there are certain things that you just miss, but it was a really weird time. It was a team that I knew some of the players on it. I still do. And that's what, that's, what's made it, I think for me a little easier 
but for certain people on our broadcast team, it's just some of these players, like you've never met them before and, and you have a shortened season and it's strange and there are all these rules and regulations and all these kinds of things you can't do that a lot of broadcasters took for granted. So I think 2020 was a, as a, was a definitely a, uh, an alarming experience for everybody. It was an alarming year for everybody. I mean, let's face it. There was nothing that was nothing that was great about 2020. Um, I think the only thing I can point to is that we played a baseball season, um, especially after everything that took place running up to it. And then in 2021, I'd say it was normal-ish. It wasn't fully back to the way it was supposed to be, you know, doing games remotely and things like that. Um, but, you know, I think that the hope is that this year we're going to see more of a return to normal, things getting back to the way that they used to work. Um, there's been a vaccine that has been developed since then. There's booster shots. Um, and, and there's just, I think, a better semblance of how to go about living your life with COVID-19, which I think we've all kind of gotten used to in, in some way, shape, or form. And so my hope is that this year is going to be the best one yet. It's going to be the most normal one um, that I've had in the three that I have been here. And so my, my fingers are crossed that it's going to be a, a great year and it's going to be a productive year and a fun year. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, they, they say for athletes, Jeff, that the, the game begins to slow down once they get a little experience under their belts. Um, as, as the game began to slow down for you as a major league broadcaster. Absolutely. That's a great point. And it's something that when you get to the major leagues, you have imposter syndrome. And it's like, I'm suddenly here and I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And you want everybody to know that you know your stuff. You want everybody to know that you feel like you belong. You want everybody to have an understanding that you should be calling Baltimore Orioles baseball games. And every broadcaster who gets to the major leagues goes through this. It's part of the deal. And if you people will say that it's not their like, like it is certainly part of it, no matter how good you are or how old you are, or how much time you spent in the minor leagues, it's irrelevant to it because everybody goes through this type of stuff. And over time, um, you know, you settle in and you figure out what you're supposed to do. You understand the team better. You understand the rhythms of the game. You understand, you know, how to use the television monitor that's in front of you. You understand how to build relationships with players. You understand kind of the rhythm and feel for the day because in the minors, you can just walk in the clubhouse and find somebody and ask them a question. In the major leagues, it doesn't work like that. So th there's a variety of things that have gone on that have, have made it so you have to adjust a lot. And I think that truthfully, um, it, it was that way on steroids kind of the first year because of the because of the COVID pandemic with they throw the monitors in and all these other things and there's nobody in the stadiums. And so there's a variety of things that, that made the, the first couple of years a little bit strange and it took a little bit more time to get used to. And I think over time I've kind of figured out like exactly how to do it, and how to call a game. And I've had some people that have been really helpful along the way um, to provide some perspective and some different, you know, give me some different things to think about and, and how to approach some situations that have been very, uh, weird and abnormal and it's played a big role in me being able to develop and like you said kind of get the game to slow down go the speed that I want it to go and make it so that every time I step in the booth I feel relaxed I feel ready to go I feel comfortable um, but just as it's a, a development process thing for everybody that kind of starts in the major leagues um, I'd say for for me maybe at times it took a little bit more time just because of changing landscapes and circumstances that uh, a couple of years ago when I got this job and I was last on this podcast with you that none of us could have ever predicted. Well, was there a specific moment where, where that switch flipped or did it just happen over the course of time? Would you say? I think I realized that I belonged here when I did the John means no hitter and uh, no hitters are few and far between. Uh, we hadn't had an individual no hitter since Jim Palmer threw his in 1969. And we hadn't had an overall no hitter I think since the late eighties when, um, we were in Oakland, so it had been a massive drought. And, uh, you know, to be very honest, um, when you are calling a no-hitter and you have one of those calls at the very end, you have to hit it. You can't mess it up because this is something that's going to go down in the, the annals of Orioles history, and it's going to be shown on video boards for years to come, and it's going to be shown in highlight montages and um, year-end highlights for you know, across MLB network and what have you, it's going to be played on sports center and MLB network and all these different places. And you have to get it right. There's just no way around that. It's like, you know, it's like being somebody who is 
throw it on the on the stage and if you're like a broadway performer or something like that like you just have to be good you have to just do your job you have to trust your training and you have to trust your preparation and you know i go back to that day and you know me and brett hollander were doing the game and i think around the third inning we sensed like this could be a special day and you know, even in the first thing there were signs where it's like oh man this lineup for the mariners it's not as great as it could be and john is getting some calls early on and, and just based on the way it started i'm like oh if he gets that pitch all day long this is going to be a, a real a real long day for them and then we suddenly get to the seventh inning and you know even like the sixth fifth sixth inning i think in the first couple innings we knew it was going to happen and so at the very end when um, there was a line out to Ramon Urias at shortstop and you have to make that call and you, you really don't have time to think about it. You just have to execute and do it and, and nail it. And, um, you know, fortunately I was pretty happy with how it went. And, and then I heard from people and saw it on all the networks and, you know, heard from a variety of folks that I did a good job with it. And I think that was the moment where I was like, all right, I belong here. I can, I can execute on the biggest stages and the biggest moments. And, um, you know, that's been one of the, the best games and one of the best moments in Orioles history in a really long time. Um, for John, it was especially significant. And, and I, I was really excited for John because I, I remember him from his Frederick days and where we saw him do some good things. But, you know, we, we weren't sure if he was ever going to get to the spot that he is now. And, and so I think it had extra special meaning for me. And so I was super excited for him and his family and after everything he'd been through. So if I look at a moment that kind of was like, all right, I belong in the major leagues, I'd say that was it. Do you, as it's happening and as you think it's, be, it's going to be a real possibility, do you start thinking about what you're going to say or is that something you no. absolutely can't do and you just have to let the moment take over? No, I let the moment take over. I, I've, I've anticipated before and uh, like a lot of us have at some point. In time, that's, 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 a kiss of, that's a kiss of death, right? <laughs> kiss of death. Kiss of death. Like you, you can't plan this type of stuff out. You just have to you just have to hope that you're your mind is is lucid and that you're in the moment and that you're going to be able to execute in the moment that's the best you can do and what came out was purely spontaneous and it was just in the moment and it was excitement it was kind of a realization of just all the stuff this guy had been through and his long journey to get there and so um you know if, if there was somebody who i would have wanted to see throw a, a no hitter it would have been john means uh, i'm really excited that it happened and um you know i'm you know, hopefully sometime this year I'll get to tell him, hey, thanks for letting me be a part of that uh, because it was it was something I'll I'll never forget. Yes. Yeah, so here, here you are, Jeff. You're ready for your third season on the job. And then uh, last last fall, the owners lock out the players and all of a sudden the season's in jeopardy. Uh, how worried were you that there wasn't going to be a season or that the season was going to be drastically reduced? I thought we were always going to have a season and I figured out they were going to design a way to make it happen because just look back to 2020 and everything that happened then and some of the financial ramifications of everything. And I realized that this may not be nice. Labor negotiations are never nice, no matter what is taking place or where these things are going on. Um, they're, they're adversarial, they're contentious, they get very emotional. Um, it is a very hard process. And it is true in whatever industry you're in where, where you see these things go on. Um, and you hear about all the different stoppages and things like that. And you know, be it uh, airline pilots or, or what have you. But I was concerned at times, but I was also like, I think we're going to figure this out and I think we're going to play 162 games. And I give both sides a lot of credit for figuring it out and coming to an agreement and putting their differences aside for the good of the game, for the good of the fans. And uh, I'm really pumped that we're going to be playing every single game this year because to me, as Rob Manfred said, if we lose games, then he would have looked at that um, as, you know, as a massive embarrassment and as something that would have, you know, I really think tarnished his legacy, um, but he figured it out. And uh, I give all the credit in the world to, to the negotiating parties on both sides and how they came to an agreement and how they were able to eventually reach um, a, 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 an accord, which allowed us to play all these games because the last thing that you would have wanted is fans to, you know, to, to go back to, you know, 1994 and, and anything like that, where it just kind of soured the game. And you, you didn't want to go through that again. And while there were a lot of doomsday folks out there that said that this isn't going to happen and this isn't going to happen, um, eventually it did. They figured it out. Spring training started a little bit late, but we're, we're not going to miss any of the 162 games. And we're going to we're going to figure out how to make it work this year. And so um, good for good for both sides for for getting to that point and figuring it out. 
uh, do you think it was a good deal, not for the players or for the owners, but for the fans? Do you, do you think they struck a good deal? Do you, do, you, do you like the DH in the National League? Do you like the runner? They're keeping the runner on second base, I guess, to help speed up the games a little bit uh, for extra innings. Do you like how the deal played out and came together for the fans? Well, I'll go back to a game that we played last year when we were facing the Mets, and it was Matt Harvey facing Taiwan Walker. And I remember in like the fourth or fifth inning, Taiwan Walker steps in the batter's box. He looks at three pitches right down the middle for strikes. And at that point, I said, enough. Like the DH has got to just come in here. It's bad for the game. You risk injuring pitchers and, and pitching health and starting pitching health in particular. The amount of money that these guys are getting paid to do what they do you cannot be risking these guys running the bases and just taking at bats like that, which are uncompetitive. It's boring. It's bad baseball. And I didn't want any part of it. So I'm glad that the DH came into play. The runner at second base, I think has to happen as well. Um, you can ruin a pitching staff, not only for a couple of games, but you can ruin it for a week, a month. If you're playing a 15, 16 inning game, imagine if you're doing that in the month of April coming off of this CBA, even with the 28 man roster, you could ruin your pitching staff for a month. You could get guys injured. You could have so many bad things happen. And the other point of it, too, is if fans really like seeing those 15, 16 extra inning games during the regular season, and look at how many people are in the stands while they're being played. Right. Not many. Right. So I, I was I was totally in favor of all that stuff. I personally would like to see seven inning double headers because I think it's important for the health of the players. I think it's important, especially for a team like the Orioles, which is in the middle of a rebuilding process right now. Um, but that's not something that was on the table. And I understand that there's certain financial reasons for that. And I get that. And I know that there were a lot of fans who wanted to see the, the full nine inning game. So I, I respect, I respect that, but, but, you know, I think that the changes that were made are, were good. Um, I think the deal ended up benefiting players and allowing for younger players to be paid earlier on in their careers. And when you look at some of the most exciting players in baseball, be it, Fernando Tatis Jr. or Flad Guerrero Jr., any of these guys, you know, some of the, the youngest, most talented players, Juan Soto, um, and then for the Orioles guys coming up, like Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez, who I think we'll both see at some point this year, they are what the future of baseball is, and they deserve to be paid better earlier on in their careers. So um, I, it seemed like that was a priority of the executive committee, and um, they did a really good job striking a tremendous deal, and um, I think it's something that they will build off of. And I also think that, and, and I give Rob Manfred credit for this, um, realizing that he needs to improve relations on the players' side. And we've already started to see him in spring training, going to different camps, talking to players, figuring out how to make the game better and how to build a better partnership between um, players and the, and the Major League Baseball offices and the owners. And, um, and my hope is that um, that, that negotiation is going to be something that can be a building blocks and a learning experience and hopefully will make the game only better in years to come. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the 2022 Orioles. Uh, the the accepted narrative once again is that they're not going to be very good. It's going to be another long lost season. Uh, to talk Orioles fans off the ledge, Jeff. Give them some reasons for some hope and some optimism. Well, your reasons for hope and optimism are Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradish. And I expect we're going to see all of them during the baseball season. This is going to be a year where Orioles fans are going to get a first glimpse of what the future looks like. And it might take them a couple of months to get there. Deal Hall, for instance, had an injury last year, and so they're going to be careful with him. But I'm not sure if you saw it, but a lot of us did when the Orioles were in Clearwater and Deal Hall's throwing 100-mile-an-hour fastballs. And I think I put out on Twitter, I'm like, well, Orioles fans, that was fun to watch, wasn't it? And I think we're going to get more glimpses of things like that. Kyle Bradish going uh, – two innings and not allowing any runs and I don't think allowing any hits either against the Yankees varsity lineup and then doing the same thing against the Phillies so that's what hope looks like is what is coming up and you know last year we started to see more opportunities for pitchers like Dean Kramer and Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells and a lot of players making their major league debuts but I think everybody realized that come 2022 you're going to start seeing the Rutschmans and the DL Halls, Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Stowers, had an incredible year last year, and maybe even somebody like a Jordan Westberg who would come up at the very end of the year. And I wouldn't rule out Colton Cowser either, who is the Orioles' first-round draft pick last year, who I saw in spring training and was very impressed by, that they might get opportunities to play for the Orioles at some point this year where fans can see what they can do and where they can get some opportunities to get their sea legs under them, see what Major League Baseball is all about, and then – make their adjustments necessary to be able to excel at that level. And I think in 2022, that's what this year is going to be about. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much hype around Rutschman and Rodriguez. I mean, what's 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 fair to expect from those guys? Not not just this season when they're getting their feet wet in the majors, but but going forward, what's what's fair to expect from uh, the, those two top prospects? Well, I think both you figure can be perennial all stars. I think you figure that Grayson Rodriguez can front a rotation in the major leagues, and I think for Adley Rutschman, you're going to see a guy who's going to be in all star games and have a chance to contribute on both sides of the ball a guy that's going to help out a young pitching staff that's going to show tremendous leadership qualities. That's going to perform well offensively. That's going to get on base. It's going to walk a lot and that's going to produce. And that's not an easy thing for a catcher. And when you look at a lot of these projections and, you know, I've seen over the last few days, how certain prospects have, have made their, their major league rosters. Um, Rodriguez, uh, Julio Rodriguez with the Mariners just got announced that he did Bobby with junior with the, Kansas City Royals is going to start off the year with his team. Spencer Torkelson is going to do the same with the Tigers. And I think Ellie Rutschman would have started off the year with the Orioles uh, had he not suffered that injury very early on. Right now, the, the most important thing is that he gets healthy and ramps up and is ready to go. And then at some point, we'll see him this year, and that'll be really cool. But but I, I think that you're looking at two franchise cornerstones who are going to make all the difference in the world and who are going to be front and center when the Orioles are in a spot, when they're in the playoffs, when they're competing, and then hopefully when they're they're competing for a, for a world title. Those two guys will be part of that, and this is the year that I think fans are going to get to see them for the first time. Yeah, I mean, what's Rodriguez's stuff like in person? What's it like to watch him live? I only saw him once, but it was pretty pretty fun to watch. The first inning he pitched, he was dominant. Second inning, he didn't he didn't throw nearly as well, but you know, it's a spring training game, and then we know kind of how, how shortened and weird the spring training was, and you know, I think there was an understanding that he wasn't going to start the year in the Orioles rotation. And especially in a year like this, where you only got a couple of weeks of spring training, where you only have a limited number of games and you're really focused on who is going to be on our opening day roster and how do we get those guys enough work to make sure that they're ready to go so that they don't get hurt. But um, in the first thing that I saw him pitch, I was like, wow, this guy's really good. And I think everybody thinks that too. Um, he's very mature. He's got great stuff. He seems like he's a leader. Um, he's polished, and I think he's going to do great when he gets here, and I think people are going to love him, not only for the way that he pitches, but for the way that um, he carries himself and, and how hopefully he's going to be one of the leaders of this team for a while. Uh, are, are we talking midseason for him, maybe maybe before that, all-star break, or, or what, what sort of a timeline for him do you think? You know, it's going to be interesting because I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we saw him in May, maybe saw him in June. He conquered AA, and we know he can do well there, and I think for AAA, as long as he stays healthy, um, and he continues doing what he did, then it's sort of like D.L. Hall. I think you could get here really fast. Right. You, you referenced, Jeff, your interactions with the players has been so abnormal for the past couple of years. But, but I was curious, in the interactions you've, you've had, who are the really good guys to deal with and talk to on the team? Well, John Means is one of the leaders, and Trey Mancini is too. And I think that you know, you, you know that yourself because you spent time talking to Trey when he was in Frederick and John Means as well. Those are the leaders of the team. And they are very talented players, and they are great people. And I root for both of them, and I want them to succeed just like I think everybody in the fan base does. The one person I'm going to tell you right now who impressed me from the second I met him and who I saw at spring training this year that I think has an incredible future, that I think is going to do really well as he gets an opportunity to start games this year, is Tyler Wells. Um, this guy is uh, somebody who's a Rule 5 pick, dealt with injuries, uh, dealt with a lot of strife in his, you know, growing up. I mean, he lost his mom when he was very young, and his maturity is off the charts. Um, I, I said it on the air when I was doing him on Masson last year that when you talk to Tyler Wells, you feel like you're talking to a 10-year major league veteran. And he's so mature, and he handles himself well. He's talkative. He's kind. I saw him last year, and I'm in Annapolis today, so I guess this is why I'm thinking of this. I saw him talking to some midshipmen on the Navy baseball team and just how he connected with them and understand where they were and the, the stuff that they did for, for our country and are going to do. Um, it just really struck me that this is a special, special guy. Um, so when I think of people that are going to be leaders on this Orioles team going forward, um, Tyler Wells is certainly on that list. And I'm excited to see him get a chance to, to start games for the team this year. All right. Well, what do you think of the season Cedric Mullins had last year and, and what do you expect from him this season? I think that, you know, Cedric, what he did last year, and I said this on Sunday, I felt like that Cedric a year ago, and we didn't know about the Crohn's disease thing until 
this past offseason when he when he talked about it publicly for the first time. Um, but knowing what he went through and how he put the first 30-30 season together in Orioles history, you're like, wow. Uh, for somebody of his age and for somebody who's been through the things that he's been through, making sure that he doesn't take any of the tension away from Trey Mancini after battling colorectal cancer, you're just like, that's a leader for you right there. This is a guy that's uh, this is a guy that's going to lead your team and and be part of that leadership core that the Orioles have formed. So um, great for him. And I think last year the numbers in spring training were a little bit more important because he was making such a big adjustment going uh, left on left for the first time and ditching switch hitting um, to bat exclusively from the left side. So I think him having success in spring training was really important. And and I think this year he's already done it. He's had the year that he's had. Um, and, and I think this season, it, it isn't necessarily nearly as important. What's most important for Cedric is just getting the reps in, being out there, establishing a schedule that he wants to meet so that he's ready to go when the Orioles begin in the year against the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, but uh, will we see another 30-30 season from Cedric Mullins? I don't know. You don't see those come along too often. Last year was a pretty remarkable year. It was one where I think Mullins would tell you that he surprised himself with the season that he had. He said, I think I have 30 bags in me, 30 homers. I don't necessarily know. But I do think that based on how his swing works, the work ethic that he puts in, I think the confidence that he has, um, I think we're going to see a guy who is going to be leading this team for a while that has a chance to be a real piece for years going forward. And um, so when when maybe some people look at the numbers like, oh, I don't know about this. And like, it's a different kind of year for him. He's already shown what he can do. And now I think it's just about him maintaining it. And um, I expect him to have another really strong year for this team. Yeah. So the team starts Friday in Tampa Bay. The home opener is uh, Monday against the Brewers, right? Yep. Uh, yep. How, yep. Uh, and starting with a division opponent, opponent right away, how, how do you think the AL East is going to shake out this year, Jeff? It's going to be nasty, as it always is. I think it's going to be especially hard because the Toronto Blue Jays, to me, are the best team in the American League. And I think they might be one of the best teams in baseball, maybe the best team in baseball. They, they, just, mash the, they just mash the ball, yeah. They're frightening. That is, that is the most frightening lineup that I've seen since I've been here. And it's not going away. And they have found ways to add to it. Um, they wanted to improve their third base defense. They did that by adding Matt Chapman. Um, they wanted to make sure and improve their pitching staff. They did lose Robbie Ray, who won the Cy Young, but they added Kevin Gossman, who's coming off a great year in San Francisco where he was an all-star, and they signed Jose Barrios to a long-term contract. They figured that their bullpen was going to be probably at a spot at the end of last year where they could carry it over to this year, and then they got all these pieces there. They're going to make it really good. So I think they're the team to beat in the American League East. And then the Yankees made some trades. You know, they got Josh Donaldson. Um, that in part allowed for the Twins to pick up Carlos Correa, but um, I think they improved their infield defense too with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. Donaldson's had some great years. He's injury prone, but if he can stay healthy, he can be really good. I think for the Yankees, he's got the chip on his shoulder and that, that I think that team lacks a little bit. He's tough. He's mean. And every team needs one of those kinds of guys on it. And then the Red Sox, I think will be really good. Once again, I think some of it's going to depend on the health of Chris sale. Who's going to miss uh, you know, at least the first couple of months of the year on account of that rib cage injury that he's dealing with. And then the Tampa Bay Rays are the Tampa Bay Rays. They have, to me, the best manager in baseball in Kevin Cash. They have one of the best pitching coaches in baseball in Kyle Snyder. And they find a way to win and figure out how to pull all the right strings and press the right buttons at the right time. And their formula works. Um, it's one that every team in baseball wants to try and duplicate, but nobody's really figured out how to duplicate yet. So I think that it's going to be a really four teams that in expanded playoffs, I would say right now will all be in the playoffs. And I, I think that the Orioles are going to just have to be smarter, work hard, execute, and avoid silly mistakes. Like don't walk somebody to start off an inning. Um, don't make an error. Don't forget when you're in a shift to make sure to cover the base the right way. Um, those kinds of mistakes will torment you the entire year. And the Orioles learned that lesson last year, and it's going to remain that way because, to me, rebuilding in the American League East is maybe the hardest task in all of sports because the American League East is unlike any division in all of sports. Um, and, and the Orioles, when they come out of this, I think they're going to be better for it. It takes a while to rebuild, and it's been especially a long time, and it's been especially tough given what's happened the last couple of years. But, um, but they're going to have to learn how to be smart. But at the same time, there is no better time to evaluate players than right now and there is no better way to evaluate players than to put them up against American League East teams and to see how they do. How do you feel about the expanded playoffs? 
I think it's good. I don't want it to turn into an NBA playoff system where it seems like everybody and their brother gets in. Um, I think 12 is fine. If, you know, 14 is, that's basically half the league. So, I mean, if you add a couple more teams and maybe add a, you know, add two more playoff teams, I guess that's okay. But I think for now, a 12 team playoff is fine. And um, I don't mind it. I, I want to make sure that, you know, I think playoff baseball is fun for the fans. Everybody loves it. So, um, so I, I'm glad that they upped it to 12 teams. I think at 12 teams, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go here, I wanted to ask you about the future of baseball and Frederick. And, and I don't know how much inform inside information you have, if at all, but I, I guess the fans here in Frederick want to know is what's it going to take to get affiliated ball back into town here? Uh, the, the, the stadium is an issue. Do you feel they need a total rebuild and a brand new stadium or can they renovate uh, Nimeo Field as it, as it stands and, and get a team back here? First thing I'll say is that baseball in Frederick should absolutely happen. Affiliated baseball needs to be in Frederick, Maryland, because Frederick, Maryland is the definition of a great baseball town. You have fans coming in from Frederick County. You have fans coming in from all the surrounding counties. You have fans coming in from Virginia, Pennsylvania, all kinds of different areas to watch this team play. It's a regional draw. And as I went on the road uh, to visit Rotaries, especially in off-season, Craig, I can't tell you how many people had been to Frederick Keys games who didn't live in the state and who had gotten to come up to games and who would do outings and different things there. And I don't think that that's ever going to change, um, especially if you get an affiliated team back. That being said, I think they need a new stadium. Um, Nimeo Field was great, I think, when it was built in the early 90s, but it no longer serves the purpose that you need for a stadium right now in um, with all the different personnel and people and just all the different ways that the game has changed. I mean, you don't have a coaching staff of one manager and two coaches anymore. It's strength guys. It's analytics people. It's development coaches. It is a variety of people coming in from out of town. Um, players who are going to these major colleges and universities and whose locker rooms resemble major league locker rooms. Um, I, and I've, having been into some of these new ballparks across uh, minor league baseball at the very end of my time in Frederick, you saw just what they were like, and that's what Frederick has to be. And so I don't think a renovation is going to work. I think it just needs to be a totally new ballpark, um, and they need to find a way to build one. Um, if they build it, people are going to come, and people are going to come in large numbers. And I can't tell you probably how many people who are Orioles fans would love to see a team there again. Probably a lot of people who are Nationals fans would love to see a team there again um, because you form bonds with these players. And there's no doubt that somebody like a John Means or a Trey Mancini or any of these other guys who have come through the area, Mike Bauman, for instance, uh, you know, the, you know, Jim and Amanda Addington, who are, are friends of mine and who have been longtime supporters of the Keys, um, seeing them come up for Mike Bauman's major league debut and, and seeing them a variety of times at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Um, the relationship they form with him, like they're, they're now lifelong friends. Um, and, you know, people like that that have supported these players and people in the city of Frederick. And, you know, it's, it's, it's example after example of different folks that love these guys and want to see them succeed. And I think you build a connection with certain players when they eventually reach the major leagues. And I think that the only way that can happen is if you have an affiliated baseball team there. Um, you can build, you know, great relationships and, and stay in touch with these guys for years to come. But there's something special about seeing them in Frederick in, you know, and then in two years or three years, seeing them eventually uh, debut at Camden Yards and maybe making, a, you know, a long lasting impression for years and years to come. You know, you think about someone like Manny Machado or Nick Marcakis or anything like that. And, um, you know, Matt Wieters, you remember all those guys. Um, and, and there are certain people that remember all of them from, from their times in the minor leagues. So my hope is that baseball comes back to Frederick, affiliated baseball does. It has to come back to Frederick because that's too good of a town. There's too many people that, that, that love that town. It's a great place to watch baseball. It's a great downtown. It's a wonderful area. I love the time that I spent there. And I think when they get a new ballpark built, they're going to attract an affiliated team. Hopefully it's an Orioles team. That's what I want to see. Um, and that you're going to see um, that place really – excited and bouncing around and, and kind of getting back to, to how things were there when the, when the Frederick keys were an Orioles affiliate not too long ago. Yeah. And if you're the Nats and the Orioles, like your scouts and your team personnel, they, they can come to a game and then go home and sleep in their own bed that night. So, so the location is really advantageous. It seems for both the Nats and the Orioles, if, if they wanted uh, to bring Frederick in as an affiliate. So, 
Um, all right, give us the landscape for Orioles broadcast this year. Uh, uh, what, what, what's your radio versus TV uh, ratio? How much TV will you be doing um, uh, versus radio? Um, and just who, who's on the broadcast team? Who will you be doing games with? Just And what, what could fans expect from Orioles broadcast this year? Yeah, I'll be the I'll be the lead guy on radio. Can you hear me, Jeff? We lost you there. Radio, and then I'll do about. Oh, my bad. All right, let me start again. Um, to answer your question, I will be the lead radio baseball play-by-play guy for the Orioles. So I'll be doing about 140 something games or so on uh, radio, and then probably 10 to 15 on television. And uh, they'll all be regular season games and, and things like that. I did all radio games when I was down at spring training. And I'll work with Brett Hollander. I'll work with Scott Garceau. I'll work with Melanie Newman. Um, I'm going to work with Steve Molesky a little bit this year. Uh, I'm going to work with Ben McDonald. I'm going to work with Dave Johnson. Uh, it's a pretty large group, once again, that I'm going to be, I'm going to be paired with. Um, so that's, that's a lot of fun. I'm friends with all of them. We have a good relationship. And uh, Kevin Brown will be mostly on TV, working with Jim Palmer and Ben McDonald. I'm really excited that um, all my games on, on television are going to be with Jim Palmer, who, um, you know, getting to, getting to spend time with, with Cakes and, and work with him and learn from him and, um, you know, for somebody that is a Hall of Fame player, he is without a question a Hall of Fame broadcaster as well. Um, he makes you better. You learn a lot about the game from him. And I'm really excited I'm going to get to some radio with Ben McDonald, too, at the very end of the year um, because Ben has become one of my best friends. Everybody in Frederick knows him for uh, that, uh, that triumphant beginning uh, that he had in starting his professional career there. Um, but, uh, but I'm really excited for, uh, for this year. And um, so, you know, fans can expect a variety, but It'll be, it'll be mostly me on radio, mostly Kevin on television. And so we'll kind of be the anchors and, and, and be there uh, on a daily basis. And um, But you know what? That's that's what makes it interesting and, and gives people different sounds and um, different experiences and, and different points of view about the game. And um, I think at a time where you're rebuilding, um, that stuff is that stuff is good to have. And uh, I think everybody brings something a little bit different and, uh, and a lot of fun. And, and what sort of things are you guys doing on the website and on social media? Um, in terms of the, the website, you know, it'll be Rock Kabako and Steve Molaski continuing to write. And then, you know, social media wise, um, you know, we all contribute day in and day out. Um, we have a great social media department that they bring interesting content to fans every day. And I think you're only going to see more of that this upcoming year. And, and you guys are on 105.7 The Fan. Is, 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 that, is that the home base there? No, not anymore. We're on WBAL and 98 Rock. That was one of the changes that came this offseason. I got you. Um, you know, yeah, and so uh, you can listen on WBAL and 98 Rock. Um, the MLB app is always a great place to go to listen to games. You can listen on XM and then across any number of great affiliates on the Orioles radio network. So it's very easy to, very easy to find us. Yep. And I, I know you love this job, Jeff, but it is a grind. So how, how do you prepare for the 162 day grind? Well, I take a lot of my off season and I do things that I want to do. Um, so um, I told you that I, I met somebody this off season. And so what we will do is we'll take trips places and um, she, she's a big wine person. So um, we, we visited Charlottesville during the, uh, during the off season and we had a lot of fun going there. So we planned a trip to go back. Um, we'll, we'll take uh, day trips. We'll take weekend trips. Um, we're out and as we tape this, we're out in Annapolis right now to just look around and have some fun and enjoy each other's company. So I think it's realizing that, you know, when you need to lock in, you get your work done, but you also set kind of a cutoff point when the day is done, then the day is done. Uh, because the, the, the one thing I learned from being in Frederick is you have to make sure you get enough sleep you get enough rest and that you get enough time to let yourself relax uh, because if you don't then you're going to pay for it and you're going to get worn out and uh, nobody wants that uh, you want to do your best and, and that means the proper amount of downtime and relaxation so that's the key for getting through a 162 game baseball season and, and i and i trust you don't have to write the game notes for the orioles uh um, no a- anymore <laughs> i do i do i do i do my notes and yes. they're very intensive and i get lots of research and i have a research person who helps me and I have lots of stuff that helps me do my job to the, to the, to the best of my ability. And, you know, the time we have with Brandon Hyde and, you know, this year we'll be able to go in the clubhouse and talk to players, but, but even so, like you, you can only process so much information. And uh, <laughs> the fact, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, when you're calling a game, most important, 
important thing that you're going to be doing is talking about what is going on in front of you because that's what people really want to hear. Right. Yeah. And you like to get, go to bed before 3 a.m. Uh, every once in a while, too, I bet. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, all right, sir. Well, uh, thanks for uh, jumping on with me. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to let you get back to your day in Annapolis with your girlfriend. But but thanks so much. Uh, we'll be listening. We'll be watching. And, and we're looking forward to Oriole baseball this season. Greg, I really appreciate it. Great to hear from you. All right, Jeff, uh, that is Jeff Arnold, uh, primary radio voice for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, appreciate him coming on and appreciate uh, Alexander Dacey and John Cannon for coming on earlier to talk local sports and for Graham Collins for producing. I'm Greg Swatek, and we'll see you back here next week on the final score. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.